0: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garifoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about the intersection of tech and politics. My guest is Swati Malavarapu. Now, unless you're familiar with the tech world, she may not be a familiar name, but the San Francisco venture capitalist is a growing power in the political world. She was Pete Buttigieg's national fundraiser helping to raise a hundred million dollars for a guy that few people had ever heard of before. We talked to her about growing up as the child of Indian immigrants in Florida and how she got from there to Harvard, where she met Buttigieg, to Silicon Valley, to being a top advisor to a leading presidential candidate. And now she's trying to use her power and influence to make the political world look more like America. And now here's my conversation was Swati Milovarapu. Swati Milovarapu, from your home in San Francisco to mine in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political.
1: Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, Joe. I, I got to
0: say, I, and I told you this when we chatted a little uh, couple weeks ago, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast since I uh, saw you speak at a rally for uh, your, your old college buddy, Pete Buttigieg, almost two years ago in San Francisco. You were his national fundraising chair. You helped a guy that nobody had ever heard of raise $100 million. That's the, the crazy thing. Uh so before we get to Mayor Pete and all the things that, that you're involved in now, I, I you know, today you're a venture capitalist, you're involved in many, many different projects, but that's not how you grew up. You grew up in Central Florida, uh, lower middle class, as you say, and uh, a child of immigrants. Tell us how you got from there to Harvard and beyond.
1: Well, I I can't say it was the most linear path, but those tend to make the most interesting (laughs) stories. Absolutely. So you're right, I grew up in a part of the country that in a lot of ways is really different from where we are now in the Northern California Bay Area. I grew up in North Central Florida in a town called Gainesville. Uh, Anybody who follows college sports knows about it. It's where the University of Florida is. I grew up in, in SEC football um in a a town which was remarkable a small liberal bastion but in the middle of a part of the state that is deeply conservative i mean a little bit further south in a coe a few gen, you know generation earlier had seen some of the worst um sort of race riots uh, in the country my husband and i both actually grew up in gainesville proud products of public schools but And, you know, the local KKK was super active just 30 minutes outside of Gainesville. So it was a it it was an interesting place to grow up, a great college town. And I think important exposure to themes and social trends that have really come to define the modern age were all there during our formative years. Um, Mm. I got into Harvard, which was, you know, every over uh, ambitious young girls dreams, you could say in the early 2000s, but had no idea what I was signing up for. It got a fair amount of financial aid to go to school and showed up and bright eyed, bushy tailed and super eager to work hard and was there with kids that had gone to places like Phillips Andover and Phillips Exeter and all of these great private schools. But I was really in over my head. And um, on the one hand, college was an amazing opportunity. I had exposure to really great thinkers, really great resources. Um, You know, I showed up pretty sure I was gonna be a doctor and go to med school. And because the university was such a rich intellectual atmosphere, I discovered the social sciences and economics and ended up pursuing an interest there. I got a Rhodes Scholarship at the end of college in large part because I really tapped into my passion for public service and studying human societies. Um, It's where I met Pete, actually. We were both pretty involved in a group on campus called the Institute of Politics, which helped us learn about campaigns and different options in public life. Um, So two years at Oxford was uh, another really informative, formative and informative period in my life. It was a great opportunity to be abroad and to be around other young people who Cared deeply about public service and we're trying to figure out what, the, what a life in service could mean in very different contexts in different countries. You know, we had a lot of South African scholars, scholars from other parts of the world. Um, you know, we'd get together to study for sure, but also over pints in a pub to talk about what it was like growing up in South Africa versus in Indiana or no- North central Florida, Um, Or parts of East Africa or whatever. So these were all really great experiences that I think shaped uh, an interest in public service. But of course, didn't know what that would mean in um, my working life. And I ended up in California because the mid 2000s were a time where the tech industry was really booming. Um, I came out here infamously telling my family, well, I've got this really interesting opportunity at a company called Google, I'll stay for a year and come back east
0: they're not going anywhere yeah.
1: no <laughs> my dad was really concerned because he was like you know california that's barely closer than London, than the united kingdom was it's like being in a different country um but the rest as it was i guess you could say it was a little bit of history because this technology boom that we are now still living through has persisted um since since the time that i moved out here so Lots of people building great companies. These companies have gone on to become really big. They touch a lot of people in their everyday lives, but are also now we're building things that sit at the crux of some of the most pressing questions of our age and of the moment. Um, So my focus has been more now as an investor in figuring out how can we invest in really great people with big transformative ideas, but make sure that the values conversation and the impact conversation is centered in at the board level on the cap table as an investor and also translates through to the work that our entrepreneurs are doing in the companies that they're building
0: all right let's it's it's a remarkable journey let's 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 uh go back and touch a few points here uh first of all we got got to talk about the, your connection with mayor pete uh, in those days he, he seems like a guy you know and we've had him on the podcast very early before he was before he was cool uh and he was, uh, he seems like the kind of guy who a tie to class. I mean, where did, where, how did you connect with that is that, uh, how did you, what was the connection that you had with him in those days?
1: He wasn't the kind of guy who was wearing a tie to class. <laughs> but he was always very down to earth, really humble and pretty hardworking and also just really focused. I mean, he was interested in public service. I, um, I think one of my first memories of time that we spent together was Pete and I were both in our extracurricular time volunteering on a gubernatorial campaign in Massachusetts um, it was one of my first time going door to door. And I remember showing up and Pete, I think, was running the the precinct program and he came with extra clipboards and extra printouts of our of our knock list um, and was like just really friendly and explained, oh, this is these are some things that I've learned that will make you more effective as you go door to door. So, you know, that that's who he was. He he brought this Midwestern sensibility to college life.
0: He and he's he is remarkable at explaining things. And now he's got uh, arguably the biggest job uh, uh, the, the, to explain something, which is the the two trillion dollar infrastructure bill. You're helping him out with uh, through Win the Era, which was the grew out of the Pete's campaign, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm helping it Win the Era. I'm I'm chairing that. That is now completely independent from the work that Pete is doing in the administration as a cabinet secretary. Win the Era is a natural evolution for the community that came together to support Pete during his presidential campaign. And the, uh, the organization is now focused on taking a lot of the core values that brought these supporters from around the country together, like our the rules of the road that we had during our campaign and putting that to work at, in a new form in the years to come. So to take on a lot of the same pressing challenges that animated Pete and the campaign to focus on supporting a new generation of leaders, which is a lot of the work that Pete was spending time on even after the campaign ended. So continuing the spirit of it, but we operate very independently with no relationship, um, obviously, to what he's doing in the administration. But I'm really thrilled about it because you know, during that campaign, I think one of the areas that Pete found deep resonance was in motivating Americans everywhere who didn't consider themselves to be overtly political or super in the know to become more active in civic life, to learn about issues that mattered to them, to learn about how to contribute in their local communities, to learn about how to participate in the political process. And so the idea is that when the Air is going to help give them, continue to give them platforms and opportunities to do that.
0: What's the challenge in doing that right now? When there is uh, and this is this is a theme that you have with other organizations you're involved in and and leading uh, insight and and such. Um, In the arena, what uh, right now, there's there's no Donald Trump out there. Yeah, there's no election out there Uh, there. How do you what's what is the chat? Talk about some of the things you're doing to get people involved in politics to make it more reflective of America and what America looks like. Because as we know, right now, it doesn't. It's getting better a little bit, but it's a long way from being uh, truly reflective of, of, of what this country's uh, demographics are. What's the challenge in doing that right now? And and and, uh, and and talk a little bit about what you're doing there.
1: Yeah, I think one of the greatest challenges is, you've really just alluded to it, for the better part of, the, of four years, we had a very powerful foil in the White House that we could use to really motivate and galvanize people. I mean, I also was motivated to become so much more politically active after the 2016 election because of what Donald J Trump in the White House represented and the idea that I could I could define my advocacy very much opposed to what so much of what that leadership represented. And it's tough now because there isn't a foil. In fact, we've got someone really awesome in the White House and a really great set of folks that are leading in the federal government, but you know, I think the other challenge is we're living through this pandemic, which is providing a really daily reminder, painful reminder to folks of just how not great everyday life is at the moment. Families are not able to send their kids to school. We've seen the loss of economic opportunity. Folks are hurting right now. And we want immediate solutions to these kinds of really deep pains. And I think the political process isn't really something, the civic process isn't really something that lends itself to immediate addressal of needs. So a lot of the work that I think we need to be putting in now to address ongoing challenges uh, like future crises requires taking a longer-term perspective. So for example, when I talk about investing in a new generation of leaders, that's an evergreen need. We have to be doing that because we're going to be needing great people to step up and serve through moments of crisis like this for the foreseeable future, but it's not the type of thing where if I do the work today, we see the results tomorrow. And so I think all of these things together make it really, really hard. The flip side is it's also why it's so important.
0: We'll have more of my conversation with Swati Milo Varapu after this short break. And now, here's more of my conversation with Swati Milavarapu. I want to talk to you a little bit about about um, uh, Silicon Valley and uh, you and your husband Matt Rogers, who co-founded the digital uh, thermostat company Nest, started in Sight as we alluded to before. So it's, it's got many arms: investment arm, political arm. Um, I want to talk to you about the investment arm for a second. Uh, we're recording this a couple of days before Earth Day. Yeah. With all the know-how. In Silicon Valley, the know-how and the capital. Why is there not? I know that there are more being done to address the climate change crisis right now. Uh, why is that? Why is that happening? I know there's a lot being done, but there is not nearly enough. There's still uh, a lot of goofy apps, a lot of my, mind power going into creating goofy apps that that you and I probably use, and, and but that that's not really furthering uh, humankind or the, in the crises we we're facing right now.
1: What why is that? You know, it's a good question, Joan. It's it's one that I really grapple with. I think the good news is there's more there are more folks that are investing in and building things that matter now than even a couple of years ago. So I think the tide is gradually starting to shift there, but the bigger question of why there isn't more of it? I mean, I I'm afraid I don't have a good answer except to continue to put out there that I think the thing that's differentiated about what the tech industry that makes this part of our part of the country so unique, so special, is not just that we put a little bit of money into software and make a ton of money on the other side of it uh, and build things that are entertaining for people. I think it's because our capital can be truly creative and at their best, our innovations make people's lives better. They leave the world better than we found them. and. I've certainly made a choice to focus our time and energies on backing more of those kinds of ventures. And I'm so glad to see that there is a growing community of people that feel similarly and are doing the same. I mean, there was a point when we started Insight when we were among the most prolific early stage investors in climate tech in the country. That is not a superlative that I am proud of. (laughs) That should not be a title that our relatively smaller family office holds. That should be the kind of thing that is taking up the best of our country's talent that should be endemic to the funds that are starting, that exist all over Sand Hill Road, the startups that are filling our city. So I'm looking forward in the decade to come of seeing more of those kinds of ventures and entrepreneurs and investors.
0: Speaking of Sand Hill Road, you, you've worked, uh, if you worked inside Temcac companies, as you alluded to in Google, and you've been a venture capitalist. Uh, with Kleiner Perkins, one of the storied venture capital firms in, in the country, and, and now on, on your own with your husband. Uh, there are few women in the venture capital world, uh, and even fewer women of color. Uh, what would it take for that to change? And, and what, what's being done on, about that right now?
1: It is changing. And part of what it takes to change it is more people asking the question that you just asked, the fact that we are now paying attention to it that we are naming it, that we are calling it out and demanding something better. Um, and, you know, I think at this point, we've got more women in venture working in venture funds than really at any point before. It continues to get better. There are more community and resources coming together around it. And I think the other thing that's changing and needs to change further faster is a realization among the limited partners and the existing general partners in current funds that, you actually make better investments. You can find more opportunities when you've got a team that really reflects the diversity of consumer experience and lived experience in this country. So I think the closer we get to making the case that this makes the business better, um, helps advance the cause and just the growing awareness that when you're in an industry that's charged with creating America's future, which is really what venture capital does, right? We we laud ourselves for being able to put a little bit of money to work to generate huge value and to build things, the future. When you're tasked with something that great, you've got to have a team that reflects the future that you're building for. So I'm glad to see it changing. We've got a lot more progress to go. And the, I think the other trend that's heartening me is a lot of women are taking matters into their own hands. And they're saying, if we can't wait for the men at the table to offer us a seat, we're just gonna go start our own funds. I'm a big believer that sometimes competition can be the best way to drive innovation. And uh, if these new funds are going to out innovate the sitting um, title holders in the industry, that's great. That's
0: you know, more power to them. What would help spur that on? There's been some legislation here in California, you know, talking about more more women on seats of boards. Is there any kind of political solution that could address that?
1: I'm not sure if it's the kind of solution that that politics or regulation should drive first. I think norms changing will get us a really far way and we're starting to see that happen. One of the biggest uh, catalysts, honestly, is changing what entrepreneurs demand of their investors. There's a lot of market power that sits with founders. And we see more founders asking to have women in their boardrooms, more founders that are asking for the gender composition and the racial composition and the socioeconomic composition of the investors that that um, are pitching to, to take an ownership position on their cap tables. I think sometimes folks forget that when you raise venture capital, yes, as an entrepreneur, you need capital, but you're selling part of your business to do that. And so you've got to make sure that you're getting what you want um, in the investors that you bring on board. So getting more founders to make these demands, I think, is going to go a long way. And then politically, we should continue to shine a light. I love it when elected leaders ask these questions when they're taking meetings with venture capitalists or, frankly, entrepreneurs, because this is as much a challenge in our tech companies as it is in our venture venture capital funds. Um, so I think, you know, civic leaders uh, and politicians just have a lot of p- power and influence here in the questions that they ask and the informal authority that they carry when they shine a light on these existing inequities.
0: You're, you're also working to diversify the political sector through uh, your organization you called The Arena. And, uh, you know, we know how alluded to this, how uh, the, uh, Decision makers don't reflect um, the the uh, demographics of America, but neither do their staffs. And that's kind of like sort of the unsexy part of politics. Uh, you know, you can have uh, the, the staffs or the people or the staff or the, the, or the group of people who were actually doing the work, getting in the community, connecting with, uh, with what actually is happening on the ground with the decision maker. Talk a little bit about what you're doing to try to make staffs more reflective of, of Uh, What this country looks like.
1: Joe, you're so right to ask this question. And I think it's something you've probably got an even finer appreciation for, um, given how long you've been following what's happening in the in the public sector. But ARENA is an organization that was started right after the 2016 election to bring a new generation of leaders into public service. And that has meant both the candidates that are running and holding office, as well as the folks behind the scenes who are staffing their campaigns and staffing their offices once they're elected. So to date, we've helped uh, elect a couple of dozen new generation candidates and train more than 2,000 new staff to be campaign managers, finance directors, legislative aides. Uh, And what I'm most proud of is more than 60% of the folks that have been trained are either women or people of color. So a big part of what we've done is just change the number of people and the composition of people that are available for this kind of work and these opportunities. Um, some folks are kind of like, uh, I don't understand why that matters. It's so behind the scenes. And the thing that I love to remind is, you know, in 2016, Democrats held somewhere on the order of 8000 fewer seats across the country than we did in 2008. So if you wrap your head around that, that's 8,000 people who were in elected office. Figure that every one of those had a couple of people that were on their teams and helping make that office work. You start to understand how much of a talent pool we were really missing because for about a decade we had stopped competing for and holding and running these offices. So we needed to really supercharge the caliber of folks that were out there, the number of people that were out there that were looking to get into these kinds of roles and to do this sort of work. And that's really where ARENA is focused. And our work there has really driven home for me the point that all politics, all policy comes down to people. And the more we invest in getting really great people who also reflect the diversity of lived experience that Americans hold, the better served our public officials are going to be, the better served our policy and legislation is going to be. So ARENA's work continues. It's now run by a woman named Lauren Baer, who actually ran for Congress as one of the candidates in 2018, so knows firsthand why this kind of work is super important. Uh, And I think this is one of those organizations that will be around for years to come doing really important infrastructure work behind the scenes.
0: I want to ask you about another uh, someone else who went to Harvard in your era, and that's Mark Zuckerberg. He right. was a uh, yeah, as we know, is the head of Facebook. Right now, it's uh, Facebook's doing something that few people can uh, can do, and that's unite Republicans and Democrats in, in both uh, you know having problems with Facebook. What should you? You've worked in the Valley for a long time. You know politics. What should Facebook be doing now? I mean, they they we we see them Zuckerberg come before Congress uh, multiple times and they um scold him and slap him on the wrist and he promises to do better but you know there's ongoing problems there what needs to happen there
1: i wish it were i wish it were so simple that there would be a single thing that that platform could do differently that fixes all of the current circumstances but as with so many things in life it's a really complicated set of challenges i mean look i i think it's really it's a challenge when you have built a service that started as a tiny startup and you were a David that has very quickly become in some ways a Goliath. Um, you know, they've they've gone from becoming a startup to being essentially a, a utility. They offer a really important service that a lot of people rely on, and with that comes a ton of additional responsibility. And I think there's that company is still figuring out how to wrap its head around that. Um, coupled with the fact that there might be a profit motive here that is really at odds with this utility role. And that's going to be an incredibly challenging tension to reconcile. I'm not sure that it's the kind of thing that it would be fair to expect a company to reconcile on its own, which is why it's really interesting to see the growing sort of specter of, of, of the public role here? What is the role of potential regulation, of oversight? What might that look like? I think it's really important to bring the public into this conversation and to make sure that um, that all of these perspectives are considered. Uh, but it's really complicated. I think there are also fair questions. you know we talk about Facebook, how much is Facebook separated? Can you separate it from the entrepreneur, the founder that has such a controlling, um, stake there that calls so many of the shots. And, uh, you know, I think there are open questions here also about what the role is for, for, for Mark Zuckerberg and the philanthropy that, that, um, he and his wife run. And, you know, how do you also kind of potentially bring that into play?
0: Well, I'm not following you there. How how are those two? Expand upon that a little bit.
1: Well, I think, you know, you've got here somebody who's clearly very interested in building things that, that matter in the world. It was a big part of the motivation for, Facebook It's also been a big motivating interest for the very large uh, philanthropy that that he's set up. Um, And at some point right now, these things operate and they have to as very independent entities. But even if there was more conversation in some of the maybe philanthropic work that he's engaged in around where there's an opportunity to mitigate some of the fallout or just acknowledge some of the the potential negative repercussions of what the company has been up to, um, you know, I think these are really complicated and tricky things to get into. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there.
0: In other words, uses philanthropy to try and address some of the the, the problems that that the uh, that the that the corporate side potentially has maybe caused or been a part of. That's an interesting solution. What about regulating them like either? You, you mentioned that they've become more of a utility. Regulating them like the utility, uh, or regulating them like a media company, which. You know, arguably they are. They they don't have to deal with in the same I think rules, all of these so things are... should
1: be on the table.
0: Hmm. One more question I want to ask you about. Uh, we sort of touched on philanthropy there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had Michael Mechanic uh, on the podcast. He just wrote this new book called Jackpot. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's a, it's excellent. Uh, it's about the ultra wealthy in, in America and, and uh, very nuanced and, and well reported. And one thing he wrote about was philanthropy and how much. That much of this the wealth in the country doesn't go towards uh, the people with the most need. Yeah, Uh, you're involved in the space. What would you? Well, I am one of these
1: ultra wealthy people, and I think a lot of the critiques that he puts forward are things that you you could you know that I also grapple with that are as uh, applicable to me. And I think he's right to raise the questions.
0: Well, how how would you change the philanthropy? What, What would be a way to to get the need? or to get the the wealth more to people with need.
1: One of the greatest challenges with philanthropy, it's both the opportunity and the challenge. You know, when 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 I found myself in a situation where Matt and I found ourselves in a situation where we suddenly had accrued a lot of capital and wealth, you're challenged with what do you do with it? And how much are you prioritizing maybe doing for others versus doing for yourself? There's that set of questions. And then also in the realm of what you do for others, the number of stakeholders that get to debate, discuss and determine the answer to that question is a lot more limited in private philanthropy than it is, for example, if it's the government or the state that's charged with making that decision, because the state is something that every citizen has a say in, right, in some ways. And I think that's one of that's really at the crux of it. So on the one hand, if you have made a lot of wealth, I'm a big proponent of giving as much of that away as possible of of, yes, being an active philanthropist. But on the flip side of it, or maybe a first order question even before then is, what is it about the system that allows so many people to accumulate that kind of wealth and not others? And how do we change and maybe make more opportunity available to more people? I'm a huge proponent of these kinds of discussions and sort of better public policy uh, that, that are focused on that end of it. And then for the folks that have made, you know, where do we get to enter into more of a conversation so that more stakeholders maybe get an opportunity to opine on how you might be able to effect sh- to give away your money in a way that helps the most people? And I don't know what the answer there looks like, but I think it's something that a lot of philanthropists grapple with. And uh, I'd love to see sort of more interesting um, models there on how you know why is it that when you make a lot of money you can set up a foundation that decides you're going to have X Y Z program focus areas. Should there be other people that have an opinion or or get to participate in that? Can you get ideas from other places?
0: Yeah, these are these are uh, th- these are things that you're exploring right now through your various interests. One one last political question for you. I know we have uh, this is a bit of an off political year, such as such as it ever is. But there, uh, Virginia is the hot race there and you have, uh, there's a candidate there who I know, uh, you are a, a big backer and fan of, and that's Jennifer Carroll Foy. She's running for governor of Virginia. She's running up against uh, a former governor. I think her biggest challenge is the former governor and, uh, and a guy who has a, certainly has a, a lot of access to capital. That's Terry McAuliffe. Um. What's t- tell us a little uh, people uh, people who don't know about the Foy tell us a little bit about her and the and the challenges that she that she's raised. She's you know she's polling you know mcauliffe obviously has way more ma- name recognition. Does she have a shot? And why should what should we know about her?
1: I think if you don't know the name Jennifer Carroll Foy, you know it now, and you're only going to be hearing more about her in the years to come. She is on my very short list of leaders to watch. I. Think that she represents the best of what American public service is going to look like in the years and decades to come and the fact that she is you know basically in the second major campaign of her career going for governor of the Commonwealth is pretty remarkable and I think a, a signal of what you should expect from Jen so Jen is amazing she is incredibly talented she is a dynamic public servant she has, a lived experience that is much closer to home, the realities of what most Virginians face. She's also the mom to two little twin toddlers, which I think is awesome and something that so many of us can empathize with, parenting and wow. running a campaign Oh my, oh
0: my goodness! through I can't, the pandemic. I can't that. She's one
1: of the first yeah. Black women to have graduated from VMI um, in Virginia. And if she's elected, this really should blow a few people's minds. She would be the first black woman to be elected governor in American history. Um, That's pretty remarkable that in 2021, we're looking at something like that. But you should check her out on her website. Listen to her talk. Listen to the way that she connects with voters. I think she's got this authenticity. Um, She doesn't she's not the sort of staid politician. She's really doing this because she's motivated to serve and make life better. She's done more in her two terms. In the Virginia House than a lot of state legislators do in an entire career. Um, she's a former public defender. So these are a lot of the reasons why I'm super excited about Jen. And I hope more folks pay attention to her. I think she's got a real shot in Virginia. But like I said before, these things are also marathons. They're never just the individual track races of any individual campaign or season. And I think of this as like a real investment in Jen and a very bright future where she's going to help a lot of people.
0: Well, of course, if she comes on the podcast, she'll get the it's all political bump. We saw what had happened to Buttigieg after he came on early. He blew up. I think that was that was key at at Swati, correct?
1: Well, Joe, that's basically a formal invitation. I'll let Jen know. Absolutely. It's a formal <laughs> invitation. Okay. Anything else that we should know? Did you, what are you up to next? You're, you're, you've got
0: like lines in the water everywhere. What, well, I'd love to next? ask
1: you a question. I mean, I, we've oh, spent uh-oh. a lot of time talking. You know, my job is going around the country and finding uh, really great people who are doing things that I think are going to be important and trying to figure out how to support them, whether they're folks that are running for office or building companies. But something I've been really scratching my head over is why don't we have more of these kinds of opportunities and platforms in California, or even in the Bay Area? I mean, when we talk about, for example, political careers that were started in the Bay, we talk about Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris, and they are phenomenal. But those were more than a decade ago. In some cases, really almost two decades ago, if you think about when they were first elected to major office. So what's happened in the last 20 years, and and who are the rising stars to watch?
0: Well, I think... uh... Part of the reason we have that is that look at the people who are still in office. We have Nancy Pelosi, age eighty. You know, uh, Jerry Brown just got off the the, the train, he, age eighty. Uh, the average age of the congressional delegation here is very high for the most part. There's a few small wells and and such there, but but it's but it the pro the, the problem the challenge whatever you want to call it is that uh, people get elected here and they stick around <laughs> forever, and that clogs up the pipeline. Um, and it certainly has clogged up the pipeline for for uh, uh, black elected officials. Barbara Lee is the only uh, uh, elected black member of Congress between L.A. and the uh, and the U.S. Canadian border. I mean, it, it, there there are very few, uh, uh, a dwindling number of uh, black electeds in California. Yes, the, the problem is is really acute here, and it's and again part of it is because people are elected, and they stick around, and, and it's very hard to defeat an incumbent.
1: I think we've just got to find ways to do better here. So if you've got any ideas, I'd love to hear them.
0: I am actually working on a story about that. Maybe we'll talk about that offline. So I don't want to tip my hand here, but yes. So, Antti, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's, it was, it's two years in coming, uh, but it was, uh, I was really glad we got a chance to talk. Thank you so much.
1: Likewise. Take good care. Thanks, Joe.
0: I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Swati for joining us here today. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And of course, a shout out to our fabulous theme song. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if you wore a tie to class or a t-shirt, it's all political.